Dear Lord, we thank you for this uh, this evening where we get to come and study your word, where we get to look at the life of your son, Jesus Christ, and uh, how he proved himself to Israel, and yet they rejected him. Um, we thank you for his uh, ministry and his witness in life, and we thank you all the much more for his gift to us in his death and resurrection. Uh, we pray that we never lose sight of this, and we pray that uh, you help us to understand the spiritual importance of what we study this evening. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, this evening we are looking at Jesus Christ's authentication of himself to the Jewish people in Galilee. Last week we left off with just a little bit more to go. He was in Samaria still. He stayed for two days longer in Samaria after he met the Samaritan woman. And many people came to believe in his saving gospel. And that began our look at the authentication of the king. He authenticated himself at Passover uh, in the temple where he declared his authority to cleanse the temple from the sons of Annas. And then he declared himself able to give living water, new spiritual life in Samaria. He demonstrated his uh, supernatural abilities as the Messiah of Israel by telling the Samaritan woman all that she had done in her life. After the two days in Samaria, he went back to Galilee and began his first preaching tour in his hometown of Nazareth. <clears throat> so in Luke 4.14, we read that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He had been driven by the Spirit into Samaria, and now the Spirit is leading him back into Galilee. And the news about what he had done at Passover in Jerusalem at the temple had been spreading and so it spread through all the surrounding districts, and he began to teach in the synagogues, and he was praised by all. Now, we'll notice that Jesus is always teaching in the synagogues. He did not reject all Jewish culture. Synagogues were not something prescribed by the Mosaic Law. They had grown out of a cultural need to learn and study the Torah. And so, he was using what was available to him. This was a cultural center for the Jews. This was where their religious and even secular lives uh, were focused. They would meet in the synagogues, and it was the center of their worship as well. Now, he came preaching the gospel of God. Now, it's easy to go through scripture and just say that the content of the gospel is the same in every scenario, but gospel means good news, and the context tells us what the content of that gospel is. Not every gospel mentioned in scripture is the saving gospel of the church age. Here, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was nowhere in view. That is the saving gospel but he is preaching a gospel that is the time being fulfilled, the kingdom of God being at hand, and repentance for Israel 
and for them to believe in this gospel, and that is Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the messianic king or the messianic kingdom being offered by God to first century Israel if they would accept the Messiah. So this is not the gospel of salvation, though as we saw with Nicodemus, one must be born again in order to enter this kingdom. They will need to believe in the saving gospel. They will come to believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. If they have accepted him before his death, they will accept the saving gospel after his death as well. But he is coming offering the kingdom. This is the gospel that they would believe. This is the context that they had from the Old Testament and this was the expectation of the Messiah, that he would bring in the kingdom. Repentance was necessary, and this was offered to national Israel. National Israel would have to accept the kingdom as a whole, and individuals would have to accept him as individuals in order to enter into that kingdom. So this is the gospel that he went preaching, that the kingdom promised since the time of Moses was now being offered for the first time. And in order to receive it, they would receive him as their king, the Messiah. In order to authenticate his claim, he did miracles. We'll see why he did miracles to authenticate his claim when we get to the paralytic that he heals at the end of this evening. But for now, we will just recognize that along with his gospel message, he was healing, and he was exercising demons. In John 4.46, we read, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. There was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea to Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Now this royal official would have been a government official of Herod Antipas, who was the ruler in Galilee. And he came from Capernaum to Galilee. Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, about 20 miles uh, from Cana, and it is downhill from Cana. So he traveled the better part of a day up to Cana, where Jesus had performed his first sign recorded in the Gospel of John. And here the second sign recorded in the Gospel of John will also be at Cana. These are not his only signs, but these are the signs that John chose to record for his purpose. Cana was about a, 20 or about a single day's journey, 20 miles. Now when the man came and asked Jesus to heal his son, who was at the point of death, Jesus' response was, Unless you people, being in the plural, see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. He is testing this government official to see if he is looking for a sign, if he is looking for a wonder, or if he has come in faith, believing that the Messiah or that Jesus is the Messiah and able to do what he is asking him to do. He has not come questioning, but he has come asking. And so the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This official expects that Jesus will need to be there in person in order to heal. However, Jesus does not need to be there in person. Jesus, uh, 
implements many different manners of healing. He himself is the healer. Whatever means he chooses to heal by is for the benefit of the one being healed to show them his power. So Jesus says to this government official, go, your son lives. And John records that the man believed. Now this is a simple enough statement, but we also see that he demonstrates his faith as well. He believes the word that Jesus spoke to him and he started off. And as he was going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. Now this might seem at first as if Jesus said, your son is healed and he immediately went on his way to go see if it was true. That is not in fact the case. Let's look at what his servants said. He inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, it was yesterday at the seventh hour when the fever left him, which would have corresponded with the time that Jesus declared his son to be healed. And so he waited until the next day to go and check if what Jesus said was true. In fact, he wasn't even checking if what Jesus said was true. He believed it. And so it was yesterday at the seventh hour, which is one o'clock in the Jewish way of reckoning time, which means he had time to get down to Cana or to Capernaum that evening. He would have arrived at night, but he chose to spend the night instead in Cana because he believed that what Jesus said was true. Now, along with these miracles and along with the gospel, Jesus is authenticating himself as the Messiah and he will declare himself outright to be the Messiah. And he will do this in a way that the Jews would recognize in their culture. It sometimes is not enough for liberal scholars of our day, uh, but if they only know anything about Jewish culture, it becomes quite clear, not only by his words, but by the reaction of the Jewish leaders, that he was very explicitly declaring himself not only to be the Messiah, but to be God. The Jews did not always correlate those two concepts. And so in Luke 4, we read, he came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. Now this needs a little bit of context here. The Jewish custom on the Sabbath day was to go to the synagogue, and they would read from the Torah and from the prophets. Seven men would be selected, and they would read a specified portion of the Torah. It was divided up into 54 portions, and it would be read once through each year. And these seven men would divide it in either three, seven, or 21 verses. They were not to divide verses that Moses himself did not divide. And the last one could read the fewer verses, three verses, but no fewer than three. And then he would be given a portion of the prophets, to read from a scroll called the Hexapla, and he would have to read these verses as well. Jesus is handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, which means he was the seventh one chosen to read. Having finished the Torah section, he was then given from the prophets the book of Isaiah. 
and he reads from the book, from the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of, of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now he is reading then from Isaiah 61, but he only reads one and a half verses. This is never okay in this in the synagogue on the Sabbath. You cannot divide what Moses did not divide, and you cannot read fewer than three verses. That was the minimum requirement. He is bucking tradition here, and it is going to get the attention of not only everyone there, but of the Jewish leaders as well. At this point, it is his purpose to get the attention of the Jewish leaders because he will need to be investigated and they will need to make a decision about his claims, whether to accept them or to reject them. Now, a quick note here. <clears throat> this comes from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2a. But two of these clauses do not appear in that prophecy by Isaiah. Recovery of the sight of the blind was added completely. That is not present in the Isaiah text. Jesus has every right to add here because he is the word of God. No other person would have the right to add to the word of God. And he sets free those who are oppressed. This comes from about three chapters earlier in Isaiah. Isaiah 58, verse 6, part B. This would also go against the grain of what was permitted, what was expected, what was allowed in rabbinic tradition. He is essentially doing everything wrong that he could possibly do wrong in their tradition. But he's not doing this on accident either. We'll see when he sits down. Let's see. Oh, after he finished reading, he sat down. He closes the book, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down. Now he had stood to read because this was what was expected of him. They stood to read. But then when he sat down, this is for the purpose of teaching. When a rabbi sat, he would sit to teach. And he began to explain to them the scriptures that he had just read. Notice that all the eyes in the synagogue are fixed on him. This is probably because he just did a major no-no uh, for synagogue service. But he begins to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He is declaring that this scripture, which was well known to be a messianic scripture in rabbinic teachings, had been fulfilled, meaning that he himself was the fulfillment of this verse. Now he did cut short a prophecy. The rabbis took verses 1 through 3 as a single verse with a single fulfillment. And now all prophecies do have only a single fulfillment, but some prophecies have a double reference. That means that what might appear to be one prophecy is actually two prophecies. We saw this in Isaiah 9 a few weeks ago, and we see it here again, that this prophecy in Isaiah about the kingdom about the Messiah has a double reference. The first part has been fulfilled, 
The second part will be fulfilled when Jesus reigns as king. At that time, the day of the vengeance of our God will be concluded. Those who mourn will be comforted, and Zion, Jerusalem, will be rebuilt. It will be restored. They will live in peace, and there will be no mourning. That has not yet come. Jerusalem will be destroyed 42 years after this event. Naturally, this upset the people in Nazareth. They had watched him grow up. They did not believe he was the Messiah. He was Joseph's son, nothing special. In fact, by indicating he's Joseph's son and not Mary's son, Perhaps they were even insinuating that this would be impossible because Joseph is a descendant of David through Jeconiah. He is disqualified from being the king. So how is it possible that his son could even dare to proclaim himself as the Messiah? How could he possibly be that eternal king of Israel? Well, Jesus responds to this that no prophet is welcome in his hometown. He uses the example of two different prophets who are not welcome in their hometowns. And he, uh, he drives the dagger a little deeper by choosing two events from these prophets' uh, lives to show that the offer that he is giving to Israel the blessing portion of that will be extended to the Gentiles because they will reject it. This is going to enrage them. He says to, or Jesus says, I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. She was a Phoenician woman, not a Jew. Elijah was sent to her and she was blessed through his ministry. Where God did not choose to send Elijah to any of those in Israel because Israel at that time had turned their back on God. The same scenario is occurring here with God's greatest prophet, Jesus Christ. He gives a second. He says, there were many lepers in Israel. This will be important again in a few minutes. There were many lepers in Israel in the times of Elisha, the prophet. None of them were cleansed. In fact, no leper had ever been cleansed in Israel under the law. But only Naaman, the Syrian, an Aramean, was cleansed while there were plenty of Jews to cleanse in Israel. God chose to cleanse a Jew or uh, an Aramean. And if you look at the context of his cleansing, it was on the basis of his faith in contradistinction to Israel's rebellion. God blesses the one who has faith. 
It's important, though, at this point to uh, draw some further context. Jesus is not removing the offer from Israel. He is removing the offer from first century Israel when they reject him. The offer cannot be removed from Israel as a whole, as an entity. In fact, Paul speaks about this in Romans 11, where he writes, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? But may it never be. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now in their transgression is riches, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Jesus is naturally upsetting his hometown right now. He is saying this offer, not of the kingdom, but of the blessings of a Messiah, is going to be extended to the Gentiles because you are rejecting it. But Paul, looking back after the rejection, is saying that if God was able to bless the rest of the world through their rejection so that salvation could come to the Gentiles, how much more is God going to bless not only Israel but the whole world through Israel's acceptance of the Messiah? But the people were provoked by this statement. They hadn't even rejected him yet. They were told the consequences of their rejection. And so Nazareth enacts their initial rejection. They will reject him officially soon, but not yet in this evening's lesson. And what happens in Nazareth is going to happen in Israel, just as what happens to the forerunner, John, will also happen to the king. So what happens in Nazareth happens in Israel. We get these foreshadows of what the response of all will be by seeing a microcosm. And so after Jesus tells them his uh, little story about Elijah and Elisha, they uh, do do the same thing and get in such a rage that they decide they're going to throw him off a cliff. It does not work naturally, and it's, uh, it's quite anticlimactic how it does not work because he simply passes through their midst and went his way. The Catholics have a tradition that he leapt from the cliff five miles and landed on a different mountain. Um, I don't buy that. But from that point, he leaves Nazareth. Now, it won't be the last time he ever goes to Nazareth, but Nazareth will not be the center of his ministry. He will move his ministry down to Capernaum, where faith had been demonstrated once already. And so leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. You see, none of this is a surprise to God. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea. Now, this was actually called the way of the sea, this highway that passed through Capernaum. It was called the Via Maris in Latin, which literally does mean way of the sea. It was a highway that connected Egypt to Mesopotamia. It, uh, and it went through or divided the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
So by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in the Transjordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, we'll see that Decapolis was part of the uh, region which started to believe in Jesus. The Decapolis was 10 Greek cities that were set up in the region of Galilee. And quoting here from Isaiah, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Usually the people sitting in darkness is a reference to Gentiles. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them light dawned. Now this is going to reach to Jews primarily, but there are enough Gentiles in this region and we'll see that often Gentiles will have faith in him, but Gentiles are not being offered the kingdom of Israel. Israel is being the king being offered the kingdom of Israel, and it is going to be national Israel which rejects him. And so despite the fact that we will see many who come to faith and many who reject, ultimately his offer is rejected. <clears throat> so that was his first preaching tour. Again, a, uh, a preacher's success is not measured on his converts, but uh, by his faithfulness to God. And Jesus was faithful to God in all thing, dis things, despite uh, his uh, preaching resulting in them trying to throw him off a cliff. But he is going to demonstrate now his authority over demons, over demonized people, and over disease, over people with diseases. He is going to cure both of them. These will be the primary miracles that he offers during his ministry on earth. Matthew 4.31 says he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So about a week has passed now. They were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Now they're going to wonder at his authority, because usually a rabbi would teach on the authority of whatever rabbinic school he had gone to. His teachers would be the authority that qualified him to teach. Jesus had none of this. He did not go to a rabbinic school. He was not ordained in the rabbinate, but he preached on his own authority. This shocked people that he would open the scriptures and explain to them what they meant without citing that rabbi such and such says about this passage. This is what amazed them. He preached on his own authority. <clears throat> but as he's teaching, a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon who was present in the synagogue cried out with a loud voice. Notice this is not a mute demon. Uh, exercising a mute demon, as we'll see, will be a messianic miracle, a miracle that only the Messiah could do. This kind of exorcism was performed by the rabbis. They had a process by which they would do it. Um, and Jesus does not follow that process, however. In order to exorcise a demon, the rabbinic teaching uh, stated that you would have to ascertain the demon's name so that you could gain authority over it. And it was an issue of authority. This demon cries out, let us alone. What business do you have with each, or we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
Now, people are wondering at Jesus' authority. This demon is not wondering. He understands what the people are not understanding, despite how clearly Jesus is preaching it to them. But Jesus rebukes this demon. He does not let it speak. He says, be quiet and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out without doing any harm to the person. Now, Jesus rebukes this demon. He does not permit the demon to be a witness to him because the issue for Israel is faith in the Messiah. If they believe his testimony of himself, it is much better than if they believe a demon's testimony of him. The issue is they should be believing him, not a demon. But notice as well that the Lord Jesus rebukes this demon. This is not something that a man can do. In Jude 9, you guys might have a post-traumatic stress over our study through Jude last summer, but Jude 9, Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Matthew 4.34 says Jesus rebuked him. Michael the archangel did not dare to do what Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, just did. Now, the Jews did not have Jude 9, but they did have Zechariah 3. Then he showed me, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Rebuking Satan, rebuking a demon, was something that only the Lord had the authority to do. Jesus was taking that authority upon himself because he is the Lord. Matthew 4.36 records the reaction of those who saw it. They understood what they were looking at. And amazement came upon them all. This was not the rabbinic way of doing things. They began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Notice that after he does anything, the gospel writers record how his fame is spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading. Everything that he does is reaching towards a climax. Isaiah 50 has the answer to what authority he does this on. You remember we looked at Isaiah 50 when we saw that God himself was Jesus' teacher. Isaiah 50 records that the Lord gave, has given me, speaking about the Messiah, the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I wonder if that's the wrong verse. I think it might be the tongue of the disciples thing that I put there.
Yep, no, that's the right one. He has given me the tongue of the disciples. <clears throat> All right, Jesus has demonstrated his authority over demons. He has also demonstrated his authority to teach the scriptures. Now he demonstrates his authority to heal, to heal from sickness. In Luke 4.38, it says, Then he got up and left the synagogue. So this is going to again happen on the Sabbath. And he entered Simon's home, that is Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law, who has a mother-in-law but a married man, was suffering from a high fever. Peter was married. He was not celibate, as the Catholics like to teach. But they asked Jesus to help Peter's mother-in-law. She had a high fever. Standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she immediately got up and waited on them. Now, skeptics love this event because Luke records that he rebuked the fever and it left. Or is that right? And then Matthew, I have Luke written up here. It's Matthew, though. Matthew 8.14, Jesus touches her hand, and the fever left her. And Mark 1.31, he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. Now, the issue for the skeptics would be none of these are mutually exclusive. Jesus did all of these. But each author of Scripture being guided by the Holy Spirit in content still had their own theme that they were bringing out. And each author recorded the aspect of Jesus' healing of Peter's mother, which best demonstrated their theme. Jesus Christ, the King, who by a single touch was able to heal. Luke, who was concerned with the ideal man, who had control over disease, that which weakens the body. He was able to control it just simply by rebuking it. Mind over matter, you might say. And Mark, who is concerned with the servanthood of Jesus, shows that as a servant, he raises her up and takes her by the hand. He is more focused on Jesus' care for the mother than for the healing itself. Now, both of these things, the exorcism of the demon and the healing of Peter's mother, happened on the Sabbath. Neither one of these things were permitted by tradition to occur on the Sabbath. You could not exorcise a demon on the Sabbath. You could not heal on the Sabbath unless it threatened life. Neither of these appear life-threatening. In fact, when the demon was exorcised, it says it does, did not even hurt the man. And although Peter's mother was, had a high fever, rather, the verb tense indicates that it was chronic. This was nothing new to her. It was nothing extreme. This is something she had been dealing with for a long time. Jesus healed and exercised out of compassion. And he did so on the Sabbath, because it is never restricted by the Mosaic law to heal on the Sabbath, but rather it is restricted by the Pharisees. <clears throat> 
But the people who are familiar with the Pharisaic law and unfortunately unfamiliar with the Torah apart from Pharisaic interpretation and tradition waited until the sun set on the Sabbath. They did not break rabbinic tradition as Jesus was. They waited until the sun set so that it was no longer the Sabbath. And then all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, Jesus, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God, but rebuking them. Again, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. He wants faith from the people, faith in his words, not in the demons. But notice as well, Mark or Luke rather does make a distinction between those sick with disease and those demon-possessed. Sometimes these are viewed to be one and the same. If someone has multiple diseases, they would say he has multiple demons. Luke, the doctor and theologian, disagrees with this. We should too. In Mark, we get what happens immediately after this, which would be the next morning. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went out away to a secluded place and was praying there. We see this multiple times in Jesus' ministry that he gets up and he prays early in the morning. This is probably a practice of his that he would do every single morning. But it is recorded for us especially when something is about to change in his ministry, when he is going to need extra help from God in order to make it through the next section of his ministry. Probably the best demonstration of this would be the night before he goes to the cross where he spends hours in prayer, so many hours that his disciples can't even stay awake while he is praying. But he went away to a secluded place and he was praying there. And then Simon and his companions, being the other disciples, searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Of course, they're looking for him. He's offering healing. They want his healing. We'll see that they're not as interested in his message as they are in his, in his power. So he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. All the people in his town are looking for him. He says, let's go somewhere else. Why is that? He says, so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. He came to preach. He came to offer the kingdom to Israel, that message, not to heal apart from faith, but to heal because of faith. He went into their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, preaching and casting out demons, his second preaching tour. Now you'll remember he's got five disciples at this time. He has John and Andrew and Andrew's brother, Simon Peter, and Nathaniel and Philip. Nathaniel and Philip don't show up so much in these passages that we're going through this evening, probably because he's in Capernaum. Nathaniel and Philip did not live in Capernaum. They lived in Nazareth, if you remember, or not in Nazareth. Um, They lived near Nazareth in Galilee. In Mark 138, we see, we read that one. He was preaching and casting out demons. 
Here we go. News about him spread through all Syria. Now, Syria would include the northern part of Israel. It is spreading throughout Galilee. It is going beyond Israel as well. This is a Roman um, designation of the area. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from around the Jordan, which is the, or from beyond the Jordan, which is the Transjordan region on the other side of the Jordan. In other words, anyone who could possibly have heard about him by this time was flocking to come and see what was going on, who was healing and exercising demons. Okay. Now, this is yet another day, probably not the next day, but at some point after his first preaching tour. He got up early in the morning. It was probably about 7 a.m. because his disciples, Simon, John, and Andrew, as well, John's brother, James, who we're not told at this point was a disciple. He may be a disciple already at this point. We weren't told how he became a disciple. But they are out fishing. They've been fishing all night. This is their day. Actually, it's not their day job. It's their night job. They go out fishing because the fish swim closer to the surface at night. When the sun comes out, it's It's not worth it to go fishing because they swim deeper and their nets don't reach that deep. But they had no luck all night. They have pulled in their nets. They are washing the nets. And Jesus arrives and gets in Simon Peter's boat and goes offshore just a bit, probably for a better vantage for those in a crowd who are still following him. And he does teach them. But when he finishes speaking, he says this to Simon. He says, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. In other words, you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. I know how this works. But notice his faith. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. He might say, I don't think that's right. He does this a couple of times to Jesus, but in the end, he does obey. Sometimes we need to do this as well. Lord, I don't understand why, but okay. And he's blessed by this. He's blessed not just materially, which is not really the point, but the material blessing demonstrates the spiritual blessing. And we'll see that that's no surprise to Peter. Peter gets the spiritual aspect of this. When they had done this, when they did what Jesus said, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. Their nets began to break, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. They came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man." Matthew recognizes Jesus' authority over nature here. He recognizes 
himself in comparison to this perfect man, and he is sorrowfully inadequate. This is who we should be measuring ourselves up against as well. Oftentimes we try to measure up against other people, and it's easy to find faults with them and ignore our own faults. This is the ultimate uh, standard of a man. Peter is measuring himself against the perfect standard of a man and sees that he, like all other men, falls short. But Jesus does not go away, as Peter requests. Amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will become catching, or you, you will be catching men. You'll become fishers of men. Then they brought their boats to land, and they left everything and followed him. They were already his disciples, and they still had a day job, a night job. At this point, they leave everything. Jesus has demonstrated his ability to provide for them, and he has also demonstrated a much greater spiritual need for them. They should not be now concerned with their day jobs because he has work for them to do, and he will sustain them along the way. Now, this is unique to these disciples. He might call men in this day and age, in many days and ages, to abandon their day jobs, but this is not a blanket command to all to abandon their day jobs and become uh, freeloading preachers. But to these disciples, this is his request, that they leave their jobs and they follow him. He is now embarking in what will be the most difficult time in his ministry until the end, the time of investigation by national Israel through which they will reject him. His disciples will need to be with him through that section of his ministry so that when that is over and he begins to teach them what is necessary for the next age, they will have authority to preach. And so having taken on full-time disciples now who are with him at all times, no longer distracted by their night jobs, he goes and performs his first messianic miracle, the first miracle which would draw so much attention that it would no longer be ignorable. There are three messianic miracles, miracles which, through rabbinic tradition, it was taught that only the Messiah would be able to do this because scripture did teach that these would be done, but they were associated with the messianic age. One was the healing of a Jewish leper, in fact, a passage, I think it's in 2 Kings, in which God talks about what happens or when a Jewish leper would be healed, where he is no longer like a cedar tree, but brought down humbly like a hyssop and cleansed by hyssop. This was in correlation with the Messianic kingdom. Other Messianic miracles, which we will see soon, is the healing of a man born blind. And the third is the exercising of a demon causing muteness. These were things that only the Messiah could do, and the Messiah would do them. 
And so when we come to this healing of a leper, we pay attention and we recognize their response as well. When he did this, how did they respond? And so Luke 5 says that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. The ASV says beholden with leprosy. In other words, this was advanced stage leprosy. It was not the beginning stages, but he was near death. I have a very graphic description of leprosy, and I am going to read it to you. If your stomach can't handle it, plug your ears now. The leprosy, which is described in the Gospels, is equivalent to what we call Hansen's disease today. The leprosy mentioned in the Gospels would refer to Hansen's disease, which is caused by a bacterial infection. In the vast majority of cases, the initial symptom is numbness in the fingers and toes, and if left untreated, the disease slowly progresses to the next stages. Yellow lesions develop deep in the skin on the genitalia, face, forehead, and joints. The hair growing in the affected areas assumes the same color as the lesions. As the disease progresses so slowly, it can take up to 10 years for the microorganisms to eventually penetrate through the cellular tissue and reach the muscles and bones. Hair begins to turn white, woolly, and eventually falls out. There is gelatinous swelling that forms in the cellular tissue. As time progresses, the skin becomes hard, rough, and seamy. Large scabs form, which fall off from time to time, exposing running sores. The nails swell, curl up, and fall off. There is loss of mucous membrane, resulting in constantly bleeding gums. The nose is stuffed, and there is a constant flow of saliva. Because the bacteria attacks the nerves, the senses become dull. In the last stages of leprosy, the victim experiences extreme weight loss and becomes very weak, suffering from chronic diarrhea, chronic thirst, and a burning fever. Finally, there is an attack on the internal and vital organs leading to death. So when it says that this man was covered with leprosy, that's an understatement. He is so progressed in his leprosy that he has probably had this for near a decade. He has been ostracized from the Jewish community. He is as good as dead, the rabbis would say, because he cannot participate in the temple sacrifices as well. He is cut off from the blessings of Israel. In fact, it would be better for him had he just died. But he comes up to Jesus. He falls on his face and implores him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He does not come up to Jesus and says, can you make me clean? He does not even say, will you? If you are willing, you can. This is faith. Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him. This is probably the first time this leper had been touched by anyone in a decade, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. What had slowly progressed to take over his whole life was gone in a moment. And what for centuries had never happened in the history of Israel had happened. Leprosy was present in the Old Testament 
Miriam is our first recorded case of leprosy, and we'll see that might not be without or that might not be simply coincidental. But Miriam's was quick onset. In an instant, she was white as snow because of her murmuring against Moses and Moses' Gentile wife. And then seven days passed and she was cleansed. The onset was quick and the removal took a week. Isaiah the king as well was struck immediately with leprosy for usurping the priest's position to offer sacrifices. He was never cured. Gehazi, the disciple of Elisha, was struck with leprosy because of greed. Naaman, the Syrian, was not a Jew. This was the one that Jesus was speaking of when he said that in Elisha's day there were many Jews with leprosy, and Elisha healed Naaman, not a Jew. Oh, <laughs> I got to get better at checking my slides. The Messiah did not have leprosy. This is left over from a previous slide. <clears throat> now, Midrash, uh, Sifre on Numbers, has this to say about the origins of leprosy. Rabbi Jose, the Galilean, says... Come and see the terrible effect of sin. He's speaking of leprosy here. Before the Israelites committed the crime of the golden calf, there was among them no person with an issue, nor any leper. But as soon as they sinned, these diseases sprang up in their midst. Probably not a coincidence that Miriam got leprosy after this uh, introduction of sin into what at that time was a pure nation. And we see its effects still growing through the nation in Jesus' day. Now, in the law, two chapters were dedicated to confirming that a Jew had acquired leprosy. Actually, one chapter was dedicated to the acquisition of leprosy, and the second chapter, Leviticus 14, was dedicated to confirming that the leprosy had been cured. Now, Leviticus 13 had been enacted multiple times, many, many times, even by Elisha's day. It would have been used frequently by the priests to confirm that someone had indeed come down with leprosy. But not once in the history of Israel was Leviticus 14 ever used until that day which Jesus cured the leper. Now, in Leviticus 13, 45, and 46, at the end of the chapter on how to confirm that one indeed does have leprosy, we are told what the plight of the leper will be. It says, as for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn the hair of his head shall be uncovered. He shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. 
Miriam's was also outside the camp, and Aaron equated that to death. The rabbis as well equated then leprosy with judgment unto death. Midrash Rabbah in Leviticus 16 says that Rabbi Johanan says it is prohibited to go four cubits to the east of a leper. Rabbi Simeon Bar Lakish said even a hundred cubits. They did not really differ. The one who said four cubits referred to a time when there is no wind blowing, whereas the one who said not even a hundred cubits referred to a time when a wind was blowing. No one could go near a leper. It was uh, uh, an early iteration of social distancing. But when this leper was healed, naturally, he would want to go to many and tell them because he had been so isolated for so many years, he would immediately want to begin socializing and telling about the miracle that the Messiah had done on his behalf. Jesus tells him instead to tell no one. This is not because the healing was a secret. In fact, it is precisely because the healing was no secret. But it needed to go through the proper channels to affect the proper result. He says, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing. This offering would have been two birds. The one would be sacrificed, the second would be dipped in that blood and let go. Then he would be observed for seven days by the priest. He had already been observed by a priest for seven days to confirm that he had leprosy. And now, for the first time, a leper would be confirmed to no longer have it. This was commanded by Moses. He says, essentially, go and fulfill Leviticus 14. And this is supposed to be a testimony to them, to the priests. The testimony that something strange is happening in Israel. Something that has never happened before, in fact, is happening to Israel. So the news about him then, once again, was spreading even further. Large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. He could no longer go anywhere without a crowd following him. But now we notice that the leaders in Israel have been provoked. They understand that there is something they cannot ignore happening up north in Galilee, and they have to send their delegation to confirm it. So just as John was investigated, first by observation where they could say nothing, only observe to see if his message was significant, so they will do with Jesus the Messiah. The second stage interrogation and opposition, has not yet begun. In Mark 2, we read that when he came back to Capernaum several days afterwards, several days after he cured the leper, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Why was there no room because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village, every village of Galilee, and from all of Judea, which was the Jewish way of referring to all of Israel under Jewish control, which would include Galilee at that time. 
and from Jerusalem specifically, from traditional Judea. This is a 60-mile journey, a three-day walk. They may not have avoided Syria, but being that they were uh, uh, Samaria, but being that they were Pharisees and teachers of the law, I almost guarantee you that they did, which adds to this journey. This was an arduous trek. It was not taken lightly, and only a small delegation was required. Everyone was flocking to see this. This is the reaction of healing a leper in Israel. It had never been done before. Now, no surprise, the Pharisees and uh, interpreters of the law were blocking the way so that one who needed healing could not get in. Uh, we will see that this is not the only time they stand in the way of the kingdom. But it says some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, the faith of the ones who brought him, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now they came for healing. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, yes, I'm sure they have sins that need forgiving, but this was specifically calculated to be the statement that he spoke in front of the Pharisees and religious leaders. This is not coincidental. He is declaring something that only God could declare. In fact, this exact phrase, your sins are forgiven, uh, forgiven being in the passive voice, never occurs anywhere in the New Testament, except for when Jesus declares sins are forgiven of someone. And it only occurs in the Old Testament in Leviticus 4 through 6. It occurs multiple times in the context of atonement for our blood sacrifice. And these sins who are forgiven, it was put in the passive because the agent of forgiveness was God. Jesus here is declaring your sins are forgiven. And the rabbis and the Pharisees sitting by who knew their Torah very well knew that this was a statement that only God could make. Jesus, they believed, did not have the authority to do this, and so he was blaspheming. Mark 2, verse 6 says, Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. These thoughts were going on in their head. This was the stage of observation. They could not openly uh, oppose him. But they were thinking, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their theology is correct. Their application is dismally poor. In other words, they've, they've got the answer right there. They just won't believe it. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's Luke's account. Matthew, Jesus knowing their thoughts. They did not say these out loud. This was not yet time for them to oppose him out loud. He says to them, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Notice Jesus has not yet performed his miraculous healing of the man. 
He wants them to accept his statement that he has the authority to cleanse this man. And he is going to prove that he is able to say this because he is able to do what is harder, to actually declare something that needs an immediate sign to verify. So he asks them a question. This is a standard form of rabbinic teaching, to ask a question, to answer a question. This gets the, the uh, initial questioner the opportunity to think through his own question and come up with a logical answer. Jesus also helps them with another form of rabbinic teaching called Calvahomer, which means from dark to light or from harder to easier. This is similar to the tactic that he uses with Nicodemus, from the known to the unknown. He says, what is harder, for me to perform a miracle that needs an immediate sign or for me to say your sins are forgiven? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God, thus verifying that both statements of Christ were true, that the man's sins had been forgiven on his authority and that he had the power to heal. Luke, this is the same. Nope. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It is the same. There we go. All right. He has completed the first stage of investigation by the Pharisees and the scribes. They will go back and report their findings to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin will decide that his movement is significant. And so the next time we find the Pharisees, they will be outwardly opposing him. And for the rest of his ministry, they will be outwardly opposing him. And so here in Matthew 9, immediately after this, probably took a few days, perhaps a week. Um, it says Jesus went on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, poor Matthew calls himself Matthew because that was his uh, name after conversion. No one else seems to uh, get the hint, either that or uh, his nickname just is not sticking among the others. Because Luke says after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi. This is the same man. Levi is his name given at birth. And Matthew was the name given to him after conversion, just as Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. Matthew means gift of Yahweh. Well, he was sitting in a tax collector's booth, and he was sitting there. Uh, in the Greek, it's a little easier to notice. He is sitting on a highway tax booth. He is a customs tax collector, not an income tax collector. Um, this is the most despised uh, form of tax collecting, which is a profession itself that was banned by Jewish law. A Jew could not become a tax collector. They became a traitor to their own people. 
one who would work on behalf of the Romans to collect tax and would line his own pockets by inflating the tax price. He was the dregs of society, the scum of the earth by Jewish reckoning. In fact, the only people that he was allowed to associate with were other tax collectors and prostitutes. But Jesus tells this man to follow me. Recognizing Jesus' authority as greater than Roman authority, he abandons his post, perhaps making himself now an enemy of both the Romans and the Jews, and he leaves everything, gets up, and begins to follow Jesus. So happy is he about this new life of his that he throws a big party at his house. The only ones who will come are other tax collectors and sinners, which is a euphemism for uh, prostitutes here. And as they were reclining at tables, which was how they ate, Pharisees and their scribes began to grumble at Jesus' disciples. They don't even have the guts to oppose Jesus to his face. They're grumbling to his disciples and saying, what do you, or why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Notice they are not recognizing themselves as sinners, though. Although, as I said, that is a euphemism for prostitutes, so maybe not that weird. But Jesus answered them and said, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, they could have recognized at this point that they are sinners and that they are sick and that they need a physician, but they did not. Jesus continues, I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Sinners, the ones who understand their sinfulness, are responding to his message. Those who are self-deluded in their own self-righteousness are not. They don't believe they need him. But then Jesus, once again, uh, has the perfect way of insulting them. These uh, teachers of the law, he tells them, go and learn what this means. That I desire compassion and not sacrifice. We'll see in our next two lessons that the Pharisees missed the entire point of the law. They would keep the outer purpose of the law and completely forego the spirit of the law. They lacked mercy in everything they did, but they would do the letter of the law. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. All right, next week, no class. Uh, we are taking a one-week break, and I thank you for your grace in this because I'm finishing some classes and I need the time. But in two weeks, we will come back. Uh, we will see the part two of Messiah's authority. We will see his authority over tradition, over the Sabbath, and we will see his calling of his last disciples. Five more disciples to go. Uh, this will be in your student, let, or student manual, uh, lessons 49 through 54. So you've got two weeks to, uh, to complete those homeworks. All right, and I will see you all in, uh, actually I'll see you all on Sunday, but I'll see you in two weeks for this class. Let's pray. 
Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that it is recorded for us to learn today. We thank you that you have made it understandable. It's not always easily understandable. We've got to do our legwork to get there, but you have given us everything that we need, both in the text and with the spirit to understand what it means and the importance of it. We thank you for these gifts that you have given us um, so far removed in time from your son's ministry on earth. Uh, that we can almost feel as if we were there to understand um, who he was and what he did for us. So we thank you for these uh, wonderful gifts, Lord, and we thank you for the gift of salvation overall. Uh, we thank you for all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> 